The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information on this or other KUCI programs, visit KUCI.org or KUCITalk.org. I find this scientifically fascinating. You're listening to KUCI Irvine. Disengage this computer now. Broadcasting at 88.9 FM. Hello, computer. And on the web at KUCI.org. The most reliable computer ever made. And streaming through iTunes. Don't expect any mercy during the Great Robot Wars. And Peter Radio brought to you by machines. Returning to normal broadcast in 3, 2, 1. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to UCI Conversations, a weekly public affairs program dedicated to exploring everything in the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and last but not least, zot, 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 everyday anteaters. Hello, Anteater Nation. Welcome to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, and it is my honor and pleasure to introduce my special guest today, Chancellor and Professor Howard Gilman. Chancellor Gilman has been leading our campus for seven and a half years now, since 2014, and with so much going on at our school, many people have no idea where he came from and what it took to get here. So I'm grateful that he's made the time in his busy schedule to talk about it. Welcome, Chancellor Gilman, to UCI Conversations. How are you today? Doing great, Kevin. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Super. Well, let's just start from the top. Where did you grow up and what did you like to do when you were a kid? Well, so I grew up in the uh, San Fernando Valley, the northeast part of it, where North Hollywood and Sun Valley kind of come together. There was a big working class migration out there in the late 50s, early 60s. And so we all had these 900 square foot houses under power lines. So that's where I grew up. And, you know, it was the 60s. You played with kids in the neighborhood, you read, you listened to music. The main thing I like to do starting in junior high was I was a pretty accomplished magician when I was 12 or 13 years old, performed yeah. at the Magic Castle. And Wow, that's yeah. big time. Yeah, it was big time. It was, I, I actually got a front page story in the Daily News uh, back in the day about my prowess. Uh, those were the glory years, I think, of uh, my career. And, um, and so, that, so that was pretty important to me for many years. And then, yeah. and then and you know, how did that did germinate? Did you see something that, or did your dad do it? Or how, how did yeah. you get interested? You know, there was this kind of moment in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, where magic had this kind of comeback. And right. so if you're an only child growing up at that time, and you're looking for things to obsess over, then <laughs> sitting in your room, learning magic, learning sleight of hand was just a way of killing time when you don't have, you know, an iPhone or the internet. And, uh, yeah. and, yeah, yeah. Uh, and there was a, there's a real satisfaction with learning how to do that well. So yeah, yeah it was We're, very satisfying. Very cool. Were you a Houdini fan by chance? You know, and then once you get into magic, of course, you have to read all about the greats. And yeah, so you read all the books about Houdini and you started accumulating magic books. My parents had friends and family in L.A. proper. And then every Saturday we would drive over the hill from the valley. They would drop me off at Bird's Magic Studios in the morning. 
and then they hang out with their friends and I would just hang out with like these old time magicians, you know, for hours at a time. And then they really, yeah, it was really, it was really a very special time. Oh yeah. Yeah. Very good. Do you have, or did you have a go-to, you know, trick or two? Yeah, you have to have a go-to trick in, for a variety of settings. So did a lot of, you know, birthday parties and bar mitzvahs and did, you know, some talent shows. And, and then depending on where you were, you were either needing to use just everyday objects like coins if you were just with friends and they wanted you to do something. Yeah. Or if you had a bigger show, then, you know, we were always recreating the show and getting new and larger tricks so yeah, it was uh, it was it was a, a very interesting stretch of time when when that was something that I was really focusing on. Yeah, yeah. Did you have a particular trick that you you know you just loved? This was my my favorite trick. So in the talent show in high school, there's this very famous trick, the metamorphosis, where you you tie yourself. Well, you handcuff yourself. You tie yourself in a bag. They put a bag inside of a trunk that's been looked at by members of the audience, uh-huh. and then they lock the trunk. And then your assistant stands in front of it with like a curtain and you go one, two, three. And then on three, everybody has switched. And then you unlock the trunk and you open it up and you uh, untie Uh. the bag. And then (laughs) the other person is there in handcuffs. So that so that was fun to do. Oh, I bet. So so this was no just like here's a card and here's a coin. I mean, you had a whole stage show. So that's amazing. There was a whole a stage show. You could do one for living rooms. You could do one for larger audiences. Uh, yeah, no, it was something. The, the only thing that com- that competed with me at that time in terms of my interest was that I was also really into music. And I was a so I was a drummer and a percussionist. And that included band and orchestra in junior high school, high school, including marching band, but also a drummer in a garage band. So we would play a lot. We were in at least one battle of the bands that we won. And so for a number of years, drumming was was also very a big part of my life. You know, uh, Chancellor, I actually heard uh, on the street that you are somewhat of a shy person, but so far I'm not hearing any shyness. (laughs) Well, so what's interesting is that I, I, have always considered myself a little bit of an introvert, but what yeah. magic and drumming did right. made you feel like you could come out of your shell and yeah. then feel comfortable in front of other people. Sure. And when I started to teach as a graduate student, I felt like I was drawing on all of that fake confidence that magic gave me that, you know, yeah. you know how to yeah. stand in front of people, you know, how not to be too self-conscious. So I think that ended up being pretty helpful for me in my career. Gotcha. Gotcha. Any favorite music back in those days that you, you know, you like to listen to? Yeah, it was all that uh, sort of classic rock of the 60s and 70s. I think we covered a lot of uh, Beatles and Rolling Stones and Credence and, uh, you know, that sort of thing. You know, a lot of top 40. And uh, I think Jumping Jack Flash was our go to ending song uh, (laughs) for, for most of the gigs that we did. Very good. Very good. When does college start? Did you always know you would go to college or when does that percolate for you? Yeah, I, you know, I never, my parents never had an opportunity to go to college, but education was very important in the family and was always encouraged to study hard and to enjoy, you know, learning things. And uh, I don't remember a decision. I just remember, well, there's a certain time in high school. Now people are taking the, you know, the PSATs and the SATs, and it's time to prepare for the next step. So not so much a decision as just part and parcel, I think, of what I assumed was expected, which was perfectly fine with me. Mm-hmm. Right, right. What did your parents do? 
So my dad was a laborer for a construction company for a long time. So he would leave very early in the morning, come home kind of covered in dirt and had to take a bath with lava soap before we could have dinner because he was a hard worker. He actually got laid off in the early 70s and got his real estate license and Mm. then tried selling small homes in the San Fernando Valley to young families looking for their first home, which was a, a business that, you know, unlike working for a living, sometimes you sold enough homes in the month for people to feel comfortable. Sometimes it got a little bit insecure in the house. My mom was a homemaker until uh, my dad got laid off. And then she became a clerk typist at Van Nuys Elementary School. Gotcha. Okay. When you went to college, what did you major in? What, you know, how did that all come about? What you specialized in? Yeah. So when I started college, I just loved the fact that at college, you could just immerse yourself in lots of other disciplines. So I love soaking it all in. But I had a particular interest in politics, especially law, and in history. My favorite class in high school was an AP history course with one of those teachers that you know changes your life. And when I was reaching political maturity in my early teens, that's when Watergate was happening, for example. And I was transfixed watching the Watergate hearings. Uh, so that's when I think I got very interested in the Constitution and how the government worked and So when I started college, I was pretty sure that I was going to be a political science major, but I also wanted to soak up as much other stuff as possible. So it, I think it was just because of of my interest in politics in the early seventies, given what was going on in the country. Yes. Yes. How'd you pick UCLA? Well, so that's a good question. We couldn't afford for me to move to college and live as a resident at college. So Mm -hmm. I was going to be commuting. And if I was Mm going to be commuting, I was either going to go to Cal State Northridge or UCLA. Mm -hmm. And so I applied to both of those and got into UCLA. So I spent the four years commuting from North Hollywood to UCLA. You know, it was, you you listen to a lot of uh, top 40 radio when you're going over the Sepulveda Pass over and over again, and, and you have a job that you have to go to after school. So did a lot of time in the car, but the choice of UCLA was really just the choice of trying to go to the best place I could go to, given that I had to live at home and drive to college. Right. Any keystone moments in your undergrad education when it was like, you know what, I am home and and I'm going to keep going with this. Yeah, I, I really fell in love with the idea of college and The notion that at nine o'clock I could study philosophy and at 10 o'clock English literature and at 11, you know, constitutional law and and then, you know, at 12 o'clock, the history of jazz, you know, it was I I really felt like a kid in the candy store. And at at some point, I think probably by my uh, sophomore or junior year, I realized, you know, if it was possible to actually work in this environment then that could be a good life and um, started for the first time thinking, you know, what does it take actually to be a professor? And so I had to learn about graduate school and getting PhDs. And I think by the time my uh, junior year ended, I understood that I wanted to try to get a PhD so that I could make my life the life of, you know, uh, uh, a university. Mm -hmm. I heard you did a little DJing in college. Is that true? I did a little DJing in college. Yes, I, you know, it, it was a big deal back then if you were a commuter to listen to 
Top 40 radio, which was very DJ centric, right? Charlie Tuna, the real Don Steele. <laughs> and, and so KIISFM had this program, this evening program, a workshop where over a couple of months, you could go and apply and you had to pay and they would teach you everything about how to discharge yeah. and they would uh. teach you how to run a board. They would teach you how to cut tape, song intros and outros, how to do interviews. I actually got to interview Charlie Tuna in, in his studio. And then at the end of that, you ended up getting your FCC license, or at least you were capable of passing the FCC exam. So yeah, so I did that. And then for a while worked <laughs> The, the job that I could get while still going to college was a weekend gig in Lancaster, Palmdale at KKZZ Radio. It was contemporary country and news at the top of the hour. And I did these eight or 10 hour shifts on Saturday and Sunday in uh, Lancaster, Palmdale. Yeah. Wow, look at you. <laughs> you know, I, I, I used to do a lot of different interesting things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in terms of your political science undergrad work, were there any particular professors or writers that you were you know, drawn to that you admired? Yeah, the, the classes that I ended up enjoying the most were classes on the Supreme Court and constitutional law. So I, I took all of those classes within the political science department at UCLA, and those faculty were great. I mean, they... I liked the point of intersection between abstract theories of like justice and equality and the nitty grittiness of an actual case. You know, what does it mean in this very specific environment or this very specific fact pattern? And so I liked going from the abstract to the practical and I liked the politics of it. Uh, so, uh, so those classes, I think, convinced me I'm very interested in the law and I'm very interested in maybe trying to figure out how to become a scholar myself. So when I, when I decided to do postgraduate studies, uh, I kind of knew what my main areas of interest would be, and they were rooted in studying uh, law and courts. Gotcha. Now, it must have crossed your mind, maybe I want to study law. So many of your things circle around that. Yeah. Did you consider it? You know, I did for a while. And, yeah. and what, what I realized was that I, for me, and I think I know better now, but I didn't know a lot about higher ed back then. I didn't have a lot of mentors, you know, in my family who could tell me about it, but that I always associated going to law school with learning how to become a lawyer, right? A practicing lawyer. It seemed to be a professional school. And what I was interested in was just the scholarly study of law and courts. And I, and I thought that meant getting a PhD in political science. Now I know now that you can have a scholarly career in the law by going to law school. And I just didn't know that back then. But, and it's funny because my parents um, knew that I was interested in law. And when I told them I was gonna to apply to graduate school, they thought that was fine. But the question that they asked me was the question that you just asked. They said, so you're interested in law. How come you're not going to law school? And, um, which is a very reasonable question for a parent to ask. And so I had, I had to explain what the difference was between a PhD and a JD. And they trusted me. I'm not sure they fully understood why you wouldn't go to law school if you were interested in law. But uh, they trusted me enough and knew that I probably understood what I was doing. Right, right. Very good. Hey, excuse me just for a moment, Chancellor, while I update our audience. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to UCI Conversations. I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, 
And my special guest today is UCI Chancellor Howard Gilman. And we're talking about his career path to UCI. And right now he's gone through his undergrad education at UCLA and he's thinking about grad school. He knows he wants to go to grad school. How do you decide where to go, sir? So I applied to programs that uh, in political science that were pretty well-regarded programs and that had some people that did work in the areas that I was interested in, in sort of the study of law and courts. You know, I ended up getting into a number of good programs, especially private universities on the East Coast. But the main barrier was just that uh, at that time, there wasn't a lot of scholarship money available. It was going to be very expensive for me to go to Cornell or Columbia or NYU. And I didn't want, we weren't in a position for me to rack up a lot of debt. And UCLA accepted me. And I thought, well, I like UCLA. I know who the professors are. It seems like a good program. And it probably would have been smarter for me to get a fundamentally different experience, but I was happy at UCLA and thought, well, heck, I'll just continue going to school at UCLA. And yeah, so, that, that's not so bad. <laughs> no, not so bad. No. So, uh, and it was, uh, I think it was a good choice, even if in the abstract uh, for purposes of getting more life experience, of course, it might've been better to go somewhere else, but I, it turned out just fine. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. You get your undergrad degree in June 1980, magna cum laude, and then you took about 18 months to get your MA degree, but then it takes, you know, until June 1988 to get your PhD. Can you explain that whole grad school process? What all are you doing? Absolutely. This, uh, and it's a little different now than it was back then, but um, back then, a lot of the social sciences and humanities PhD programs took 10 years to go through. So I was one of about 50 that started in fall of 1980. And when I graduated eight years later, I was the second quickest of my entire class. And that's because they just wanted you to get as fully trained as possible. And you would take essentially four years of coursework in three or four different fields within political science. So you were just soaking up the whole field. Then you would do your qualifying exams, which sort of tested whether in these fields you had mastered the literature. That took another year to prepare for. So that's six. At the same time, you're writing a dissertation proposal. You're saying what you're going to do in terms of your original research in order to get the PhD. And so at the same time, I'm figuring out what I wanted to do for my first big project. And then it takes two more years to actually write that out and do the research for that. So I was pretty happy with the pace of it. But looking back on it, it is much better if programs can get uh, students the training they need in, in fewer than eight or 10 years. And I think higher education has successfully moved in many respects in that direction. I don't mind that it took uh, the full eight years. I think I ended up fairly well trained. But it was a little bit of a, it, it, it did take a long time. Yeah. And political science as a major, you can go in many directions, right? And, and you went more constitutional and, and free speech. Is there more to it than that? Or is that the way you went? Well, so, yeah. So I was very interested in the Constitution and the Supreme Court. And what within political science at that time, there were there was a lot of openness about different ways you could study that. And at UCLA, we had some of the leading scholars that took more historical approaches to the study of institutions and how they change and why they do what they do. 
And so since I really liked history as well, and I also liked philosophy, political theory, the, the mixture of philosophy and theory and history and politics worked very well for my field. And it, ga it gave me a chance, for example, to have in my dissertation committee, some great historians from the UCLA history department as well. And uh, so I, I felt like it was uh, an area of focus that captured a lot of different disciplines that I was interested in. And you even wrote a book about, was it the Lochner period of the Supreme Court? Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. This is uh, good research. That's really terrific. So that was what my dissertation was about. Uh -huh. There's a period in the court's history called the Lochner era, which is uh -huh. sort of the late 19th, early 20th century. Uh -huh. And it was a very conservative period for the court. And it was a time when the court was striking down a lot of progressive legislation. And there was a standard story about why the court was doing that. And I decided to challenge the standard story and ended up with a successful account of it. And that's what kind of got me going early in my career was the strength of that book as a new political interpretation of an important period in constitutional history. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Like what, you know, it was a conservative time. Yeah. And can you elaborate a little bit more? So at the time, the major argument was that the court was filled with a majority of laissez-faire conservatives, people that simply didn't believe the government should be regulating things, okay? And so when there was progressive legislation, if you're a modern libertarian, right, or you have a laissez-faire attitude about how the government should regulate the economy, you want to have as little government regulation as possible. I disagreed that they were laissez-faire conservatives. When I looked at the constitutional history going back to the founding, I found some uh, traditions of thought about, at that time, the way people thought about what advanced the public interest and what didn't advance the public interest, and that there was a, there was a big aversion among these conservatives, not to all regulation, but to what they considered to be class-based regulation, regulation that was designed to help some classes as opposed to others, rather than legislation that was designed to help the community as a whole. So the book really traced the development of this aversion to class-based politics from the founding up through the New Deal. And then my story was that this aversion to class-based politics ran right into industrialization, which exacerbated class-based politics. And the constitutional conflicts in the early 20th century were about what ended up being the last gasp of these constitutional principles against factional politics or class-based politics. Interesting. Can I classify it as, you know, the people in power and who have money versus you know, the, the less than middle class people who need help was, it, I mean, can you classify it like that? Or? Yeah, so there was a little bit of that. There was, uh, for sure, that's right. There was uh. a conservative establishment in, on a lot of fronts. They were fighting up against the rise of labor unions, the mm. rise of populist parties and progressive parties. So there was a big conservative counter-revolution against those forces, which eventually led to the big constitutional clash between FDR and the last vestiges of this conservative view. And there was a big battle between the U.S. Supreme Court striking down the early New Deal 
uh, and Roosevelt demanding that the country modernize so that it could um, reimagine the kind of regulations that were going to be legitimate. And part of my book is the backstory of the big battle that happened between the conservative justices and FDR and this new vision of what American government should look like. Oh, very good. So June of 1988, you graduate with your PhD. How's it feel? It felt pretty good. Um, <laughs> it was nice. This is when, when you start getting a PhD, you make sure that doctor is on every one of your business cards because you're really proud now that <laughs> can refer to you as doctor. Um, you get over that after a while, but it's pretty funny, <laughs> short run. But but mostly, once you get your PhD, the the big next question is, you know, what's the next step? And right. uh, there are a lot of people that have that success, and then you you have to figure out how to make that transition into a transition of an actual career, and right. and that of course isn't easy for most people. And it and it took a it took a little while for me to get uh, uh, um, the that pathway as fully established. Right, right. Was it about three years that you, you know, you would teach one place and you teach another place? Was that about three years? Yeah, it was a couple of years. Uh, yeah. So as I was finishing my PhD, I was I was one of those itinerant faculty members who would teach in lots of different places. I think one term I was teaching intro American government at three different institutions at the same time. And in the morning, I'd be at one place, in the afternoon, another place, and then in the evening, another place. So I, we were called freeway flyers uh, back then. And um, so got a lot of teaching experience. We needed to stay in Southern California, in the, in the LA area, because we had ill parents that had to be taken care of. So it was really limited for me. The first year after my PhD, the only job that I could get full time was a one year visiting position at UC Riverside. And that turned out to be a great experience, but for the fact that I had to commute all the way from West LA to Riverside. So I figured out how to survive that. Wonderful students and a wonderful community there at Riverside. I enjoyed that. And then the year after that, the first tenure track job that opened up was at Cal Poly Pomona. And so I started on the tenure track, actually, in the Cal State system and wonderful colleagues there as well. But halfway through that year, USC uh, advertised a position exactly in my field. Oh. And I thought, listen, I like the Cal States, but I would love to be in a more research environment setting. Mm -hmm. And so I applied for that job. Uh, that was going to be, if I got that job, the saving grace for our family, mm -hmm. you know, uh, being at a research university being closer to LA, not having that, these kinds of commutes, and was very, very lucky that I ended up getting that job. Very good. And you mentioned we, at what point, I assume that means you're, you had gotten married? Yeah, at some point I got married. I mean, this, the other thing about the University of California, not only did it give me an education and a career, it, it also <laughs> gave me a family. Ellen was, was a PhD student in uh, psychology. We met because both of us were brought into a program uh, that was called at the time a counseling assistant program where academic counselors in the College of Letters, Arts and Sciences would hire graduate students 20 hours a week to reach out to students that needed a little extra support and encouragement and advice. Uh, so we became part of that program and we met then and, uh, and then got married uh, soon thereafter in 1985. So yeah, so I... I my degree in 88, she finished her degree in 89. And by 1990, I had gotten this, um, uh, this uh, tenure track job at uh, USC. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. So a- any conflict with, you know, originally being a Bruin and then now you're in the land of the Trojans. Yeah, psychologically, it was very difficult. I was <laughs> at UCLA for 12 years. Right. A lot of basketball games and football games. Yeah. Uh, and everything that I had to wear was, <laughs> the, was the UCLA shirt. And I, for the first year that I was at SC, I made the mistake a couple of times just out of habit. Yeah. I sometimes wear a UCLA gear. Uh, uh, so uh, I, you don't make that mistake too often, but I made it a little bit. And you know, mo- most fundamentally, even with that rivalry, the um, the campus was very good to me, and I enjoyed my colleagues. I, I get to be a little bit ecumenical, right? Uh, and when I'm around SC people, I spend a good amount of time at SC, and I can talk about <laughs> my experiences there. When I'm around UCLA people, uh, same. But there's nothing like the place where you got your college degree in terms of yeah. uh, your your loyalties. Yeah. Yeah. At what point does uh, being at SC, because you were there, I think, for about 23 years in total. You know, when do you start to feel like, wow, things are going good? uh, Did you think you might spend your entire career there? No, I I thought so, because we were we're very uh, Southern California people and the job was fine. Um, You know, you you the, the next big stage of these careers is that you have to get tenure. So I'd worked really, really hard to make sure that I got tenure. Um, And so that happened around 1995. So that's initially when I thought, uh, okay, so they're not going to fire me. uh, (laughs) uh, And so I can stay here for a while. And then got very involved in other things. I eventually became a department chair in the political science department. And um, uh, did a lot of service for the academic senate there, for the college faculty council. You know, I really felt part of the community. That's the nice thing about having tenure at a university is you really have a chance to be part of the, the way the community works. And so was very involved in that. And then eventually was asked by an incoming provost to take a position in central administration, an associate vice provost job. I had been on the campus at that time a long time, 15 years probably, and I had no idea what a provost was. <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and so I, I took that job mostly because I really wanted to learn mm-hmm. what deans say to provosts, what provosts say to deans. I had no idea what that universe was like, and I felt like a cultural anthropologist, you know, just trying to get off of my, get, get away from the, my corner of the university, go to a different place, get to meet and learn some new things. And that's what started getting me interested more in um, central administration. Gotcha. Gotcha. You know, as you're climbing up the ladder as a professor, I guess it's associate professor and then, you know, and then full professor, right. So associate professor is after you get tenure. Okay. Okay. Associate professor once they granted me tenure. And then the final stage is when you become full professor. And that happened to me you know, about five or so years after that uh, as well. And are you, what kind of classes are you teaching? Have have we already touched on that or? So I'm teaching. Yeah, no, that's a great question. So I mostly taught sort of intro to public law. So freshman courses in wanting to learn about the study of law and courts or how law and courts work, taught constitutional law, taught the Supreme Court. And then I taught a course eventually in law and film I uh, was just very interested in the way film dramatizes and uh, sometimes obscures, sometimes illuminates how law works. 
Mm. And so that was a fun class to teach. I also enjoyed teaching in the special thematic honors uh, program that they had called thematic option, where they would take students that wanted a different general education experience that wanted to think, you know, be really challenged right off the bat and think in big thoughts uh, about big issues. They had a chance to do that and they would invite professors into that program. And so I taught a course called Change and the Future, which is, you know, how things, what life was like, you know, during feudal times, what life was like in the 19th century, what's happened with the major developments of the 20th century. So, so that also gave me a chance just to have a more sweeping scope of vision uh, when it comes to topics to think about. And, and then, of course, I taught graduate courses in a number of things, including some political theory courses in pragmatism and Marxism, and then mostly graduate courses in constitutionalism and Supreme Court politics. Gotcha. So it sounds like you enjoyed it a lot. But you were also interested in, you know, the workings of the of the university. So you start to take these more, you know, administrative responsibility positions. Yeah. How did you like it? It's an interesting question. I initially went into the provost office just wanting to see what it was like. Mm-hmm. And I was about ready to then return back to the faculty because that's the job that I always liked the most. Just talking to students, teaching students, writing about what you want to write about. And the minute I was about ready to return to the faculty and get out of central administration, the university asked me to seriously consider being a candidate for the dean of the largest college at SC. It's called the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. It's, you know, it's 800 faculty, 36 departments. It included everything from art history to molecular computational biology. And I was not sure that I wanted to do it. Uh, But I didn't know, given that I was invited to consider the position, I didn't know how to say no. (laughs) Uh, It seemed like if someone was giving you that kind of opportunity, if you didn't take it, then it would say something I I thought bad about me. Yeah, right. I was willing to walk down that path and and then treated it as an adventure. I would either Mm -hmm. like it or I would do it for a few years and realize, well, you know, that that was okay, but I really... My bliss is still going back into the faculty. Right, and, right, right. It, it's just, just excuse me just for a moment, sir, yeah. uh, while I update our audience, and then we can come back to this. Sure. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you joined us late, you are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, the UCI Conversation Show. And my guest today is a well-recognized name on campus, almost as big as Peter the Anteater, who I'm talking about is the leader of UCI, Chancellor Howard Gilman, and we're taking this opportunity for an up-close and personal fireside chat all about his road to UCI. And right now, he's about to accept a huge position at his school prior to UCI-USC, where he becomes, I think it's the Dean of the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences. Did I get that right, Chancellor? Oh, very good. So, how does that go? It's a big job. It was a big job. Wasn't sure I wanted to do it. Didn't know how to get out of it um, and uh, thought I would treat it as an adventure. And worst comes to worst, I can go back to the faculty. The, um, and it, it turned out to, to really be something that I enjoyed a lot. And I think the major reason why I enjoyed it so much is that I had a chance to interact with 
a larger group of very interesting people, right? If you're, if you're focusing primarily within your department, you, you know those folks. If, if suddenly now you're interacting with 800 faculty across 36 departments, you get to learn a lot more. And right. I, I realized that what I liked most about the job was what I liked about being in college originally, which is all the things that you have a chance to think about. And if, if, you, if you enjoy thinking about lots of different disciplines and their future, if you enjoy learning about where physics is going or where sociology is going, uh, and if you enjoy um, both the academic piece of it, but also just enjoy figuring out how to support uh, faculty, students, and staff, um, then it's a very rewarding job. And I didn't know that I was going to enjoy it uh, as much as I did, but, um, but it, it really, I, I realized at that time that I, my interests professionally had grown beyond just doing good political science and doing mm. within my discipline. I thought it would be a real privilege just to be able to help lots of other people be successful in lots of other fields. And I think that's what ended up making it a, a very personally satisfying um, uh, position. And I was very grateful for the opportunity to do it. Yeah, wonderful. I know I'm not the only person that must think this. If, if you were the dean of the College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, what else is there? It sounds like the whole school. <laughs> it is. So it's very interesting. Quite. So it is the whole school except for the professional schools at it. Right. Okay. And so and so, uh, so it's not law. It's not uh, cinematic arts. It's not engineering. Mm. Um, and um, so, but the academic core of the university is letters, arts, and sciences. Yeah. And that's the. It was the liberal arts core of the university, and um, which was where you know my heart was. You know that that kind of fundamental scholarly mission across traditional academic disciplines. Uh, so that's why it was as large as it is. And SC is made up of a College of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, and then a variety of extremely uh, well-regarded uh, uh, professional schools. Right, right. You know, as I was just looking over your website, you know, as the chancellor, and you start to follow your career path, you're like, oh my gosh, it is such a, 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 a linear line to becoming chancellor. I mean, I know it's not a given, but it's like, oh, wow, that prepared him for this and this prepared him for that. And do you feel like that? This seems like a tremendous position to get a, get a, uh, uh, you know, a small version of what it's like to, to run a whole school. It is, what do you think? I do think, right. So I, I do think that mostly fortuitously and sometimes a happy accident, sometimes because um, made the right decision mm -hmm. that I did end up learning more and more over the years by taking on more and more service responsibilities within a university. And, and the more that I learned, the more that I thought, well, now I understand that. I wonder what the next thing is to understand, right? Mm -hmm. and, 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 if, and since every stage up until that point was pretty satisfying, I, I, oh. just, I thought after I had been had some success as the Dean of Letters, Arts, and Sciences, that for me, the next logical step would be a provost position at a university. And um, uh, that wasn't going to be at SC because SC had a provost. Um, and uh, so I started um, keeping an eye out for that responsibility. I especially thought it would be good to have a chance to get to the next step as a provost at a university that had a medical enterprise, 
because the letters, arts, and science job didn't also teach you about the, the role that um, health and medicine and well-being plays in the life of the university and how it serves the community. And then lo and behold, uh, just as uh, I thought that that might be a good next step, UCI under Chancellor Drake uh, was advertising for a provost. And I thought, well, that would be an exciting job in particular because I really wanted to get back into public higher education. The University of California for me has an unbelievably special place. And if I was given the opportunity to serve at such a great UC campus, I would feel as though like I was coming home. And that's how I ended up at UCI. Before we jump to UCI, can you just say, you know, you were at USC for 23 years about, what did you love about USC? You know, the, the people I had an opportunity to work with were just tremendous. And I learned a lot from them. The group of deans that were there were extremely supportive of each other. So there was a real esprit de corps. I wish I could say that I loved football the most, but I'm, I didn't really care that much about that part of it. <laughs> uh, even though once I became dean, I would have to start attending football games. I liked football when I was at UCLA and a student. I didn't care about it so much after I started uh, acting as a professional. So that, that meant that UCI was also perfect because, you know, I didn't have to worry about the football. <laughs> and so it was really the people there, the opportunity to work on very important things, to accomplish a lot of things. But ultimately, I think I also realized that that place is very different than the kind of culture that I was used to within the University of California and that if I had a chance to take a next step and go back to a, a much more focused public service mission of the sort that the University of California is known for, that that would be an even better fit for me. Yeah, so I'm, I, I'm trying to get a sense of the difference between private and public, and, and I think you're, you're alluding to it. Can, can you just uh, expound on that just a little bit more? I'm not sure as general public kind of gets it. Absolutely. So on the one hand, all uh, major research universities are very similar in many respects, right? So mm -hmm. you have to recruit and support great faculty and students. You're trying to do cutting edge uh, research uh, on important topics. You're trying to figure out how to organize uh, departments and faculties and um, units in ways that um, make an even bigger impact. So uh, and, and the way that you teach students is very similar uh, in those settings. So from the outside, what is happening is very similar. And it's certainly, there's more things in common than there are things different mm -hmm. between, you know, all research universities have more in common with each other than we have in common, even with the Cal State system, right? Mm -hmm. It's just a, it's just mm -hmm. a research university is a certain kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So if you know, you, if you, you all know UCI as a research university in many respects, all such research universities, including SC, are the same. But there's a different there's a different governance structure. There's within the University of California a much stronger commitment, a fundamental commitment to shared governance, and always acknowledging the central role of the faculty in maintaining academic excellence, acknowledging your public responsibilities and being publicly accountable for what you do. There's a higher level of transparency that is uh, appropriately demanded and, a, and a just a more palpable sense that you are here to serve the entire community and the world in a way that is more front of mind. And so 
the, the culture of administration, the practices within the institution about whose opinions count and how we all are all working together, I think is more true at a place like the University of California than some private institutions, which can be a little bit more administration centric in the way that they act and operate. So it's, it's in those kinds of cultural shared governance practices where the major differences show up. And when you say shared governance, does that mean like faculty senate and, and yeah. things like that? Or That's right. So, the, so okay. the, the role of the academic senate within the University of California is just fundamentally different than the role of the academic senate within USC. This is not a criticism of mm-hmm. the way it's done at SC, but I think everybody believes correctly, in my view, that the greatness of the University of California is the quality of the faculty and the willingness of the regents and the system to give the faculty the key responsibility for academic excellence and the direction, the fundamental scholarly direction of uh, the university. And at the same time, having ensuring that you're in constant conversation with student leaders and that part of shared governance that we're all talking to each other in order to make sure that the university is paying attention to all the things it should pay attention to. And I usually tell people who come as leaders into UCI who haven't been within the University of California, if you think you know what adequate consultation looks like in order for you to be successful, start there and then multiply it by 10. (laughs) Then you know really who you have to keep consulting with and being in relationship with in order to be successful here. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to the UCI Conversations Road to UCI interview with Chancellor Howard Gilman. So you mentioned that Chancellor Michael Drake of UCI at the time, who's now the president of all the UCs, he put the word out. Like when you say put the word out, how does that look? Oh, there's just, there there are very formal processes for recruiting Uh, uh, senior leaders at universities and uh, at UCI, a committee is made, is put together to recruit a new provost. You usually have a search firm that gets advertised. Right. People start reaching out, they ask whether you're interested, and then you're part of a very long process where right. you, you submit your materials, you make an argument for why your background is well-suited for the institution, then you go through very rigorous screening, you are part of an interview process with maybe 10 or 15 other potential candidates with a search committee that spends hours asking you questions, that allows the institution to whittle down the finalist list to maybe three or four. And then the three or four finalists come onto campus and they meet lots and lots of people over a couple of days. And then the uh, chancellor gets a lot of input from all of these folks who have met uh, these candidates and then finalizes the decision that they hope is best for the institution. So that's the process that I went through when I applied to be provost. And then when Chancellor Drake accepted a position at Ohio State University, the University of California had to create a process to pick the next chancellor. And I went through the same process, a similar process when they decided on who the next chancellor should be. Gotcha. When you became provost or even before you became provost, did you have any inclination that Chancellor Drake would be leaving you know, sooner than later? No, no. In fact, I was really looking forward to working with him over a long period of time. I thought he would be a great mentor. Mm -hmm. I thought, you know, I would need at least a few years as provost in order to get my bearings and understand (laughs) how the institution worked and learn about the medical system and so on and so on. So I was surprised 
and I also thought that he would want to spend a couple more years, but he had this tremendous opportunity. He had made such an important impact on the campus, but it was either going to be, you know, a very good thing for me or a very bad thing because I had just left an institution I had been at for a very long time. And if I, if I wasn't going to be the next chancellor, then someone else would be the next chancellor and they probably would want their opportunity to choose their own provost. Mm. And so there was a little period of, you know, we'll see what happens. And, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it all worked out. And then in the end, Michael Drake, thankfully for the University of California, came back and is now the president. And so I feel as though, hey, we're right back to where we started. I, I now <laughs> have him as a right. person I can continue to work with directly. And it's really been a, a pleasure. Gotcha. How often do you consult with your fellow chancellors? Well, yeah, first of all, for that, how often, you know, with, you know, things going on, blah, 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 how does that work? So uh, before the pandemic, Mm. we all talked to each other on and off, depending on the circumstance on a regular basis, but we get together as a group in what's called officially the Council of Chancellors with the office of the president on a monthly basis. So that's Mm. pre-pandemic. And what we we fly up to Oakland, we spend an entire day together and work on things that we all have to work on and try to get advice from each other and and give advice to the president. Once the pandemic happened, that period of regular monthly meetings was just not sufficient given the pace of developments and the urgency of figuring out a lot of things. So we began for a while with um, the first many months of the pandemic, meeting every morning at seven o'clock in the morning, just to talk to each other. And so that five day of week schedule went on for a while. Then it became three days a week once we thought we had our bearings on some things. Now it's roughly uh, once a week for an hour just to touch base. Mm -hmm. And then once a month for a day to do deeper dives into more issues. Gotcha. And then how about with President Drake, how often are you, you know, I, I, I suppose you can call him anytime if there's, if it's urgent, to, right. um, but hey, you know, how, how often do you guys interact? Yeah. So we're, we talk on a regular basis, but in terms of regular meetings, the president is there as part of the council of chancellors. So there for our one hour weekly meetings, mm-hmm. and then obviously there for the uh, day long monthly gatherings we have as the council of chancellors. So pretty regularly we're in touch. And then as other issues arise, we call each other as, as need be. Gotcha. One of my listeners wants to know uh, the title chancellor sounds like you report to the King of England. Uh, <laughs> is there a tradition to this title? And, and do you know where it stems from? You know, I really should learn that. <laughs> um, and that, that, that shows you how tunnel vision I can be sometimes. <laughs> I would all encourage everyone just to Google. Uh, yeah. And, and as soon as this program is over, I'll go ahead and Google <laughs> Very good. I, I did see on YouTube that uh, your investiture ceremony, which I didn't even know there was one actually, um, where you, you know, take the title and you're, you know, it's an official, you know, two hour ceremony, which is pretty cool. And, and I loved one of your comments when you, at, you know, at toward the end and you, and you give a speech and you, and you say, make no mistake, I am invested in UCI. So the investiture works successfully. I see. Right. Very good. But you did say that the path forward for success for UCI was three things, innovation, expansion, and partnerships. Yeah. Seven years later, do you still, you know, it's like, yeah, that's the bedrock of my vision. Is, has it changed? No, in fact, that has served us well. And mm. uh, 
when, when I focused on those, it wasn't just what I thought were my idiosyncratic uh, ways of thinking about it. Before I did the investiture speech, spoke to a lot of people over a half a year and that had been on the campus the year before as the provost. And this campus always had focused on innovating its way to the top rather than copying its way to the top. We organized new schools you know, at the beginning of the campus, the founding of the campus in a way that was fundamentally different than other institutions. In fact, we recruited great faculty here from great institutions to do things here that they couldn't do in more established places. So we were innovators from the top, even creating the campus around a circle was meant to convey a certain thing about how we would be interacting with each other. So innovation was fundamental. We, we created back in the 90s, the first Earth Systems Science Department to look mm. at climate change. So we were always innovating our way to the top and it served us so well. And I think we continue to have a spirit of innovation. And I knew that the campus would be fully prepared to maintain that tradition and to find our opportunities not by copying, but by innovating. And we also needed to get bigger. We had done a great job for the first 50 years. We were the number one campus among campuses that were 50 years older or fewer. But when you're number 50, when you become 51 years old, you can't brag any longer that you're the number one campus under 50. And to get to the next step, everybody agreed that we needed to essentially go from about 28 or 29,000 students and related faculty closer to 40. So we did want to get bigger and then use the chance to get bigger to figure out where do we really want to grow, given where science is going, given where knowledge creation is going, and given where student interest is growing. And, and that, I think, has really served us well the last seven or eight years. And no campus can be great unless it forges great partnerships with its community. And we have a very lively community out here, wonderful supporters. So no, those three watchwords, I think, reflect where the campus needed to go and also captured uh, what had already been established um, over time by other great leaders on the campus and, and especially by the faculty, uh, students and staff on the campus over the years. So it was kind of a continuation of where we had always been and how we had done things and just underscoring that the future and our future success would, would also be moving in that direction. Very good. Is there ever a dull moment <laughs> in your job? There are not a lot of dull moments, (laughs) for sure. And it it really is a job of the sort where if you're looking for dull moments, (laughs) you shouldn't take the job. (laughs) What what do you like most about the job? What I like most about the job is just the people I have a chance to interact with on a daily basis and the work that we get a chance to support within this community. It is, you know, humbling to walk into a room with people that have such bold visions for very important areas of uh, disciplinary uh, direction and knowledge creation and figure out ways how to be supportive to that community. So I I love the people you get a chance to interact with. I I love supporting this amazing student body. I think we have the best student body in all of higher education. When you combine uh, academic excellence just with the fact that we are here to serve all the people and the ability of us to serve students where no other member of their family had ever gone to a four-year college is a very special thing for us. So serving this student body is very meaningful. And then, you know, I, what I like about the job is 
that you get to think about a lot of different things all the time. So <laughs> it, it is never a dull moment, but it's also exciting that at nine o'clock, you're thinking about one thing, at 10 o'clock, another thing, and 11 o'clock, another thing. If, if you are curious and kind of hungry for new experiences and new knowledge, you really can't beat it. <laughs> Wonderful. I, I, we just have a few more minutes, Chancellor. I understand you have strongly held social views and nobody has promoted underrepresented groups as much as you have in the history of our, our school. Can you comment on the, the importance of equity, diversity, and inclusion? For most of the history of the country, higher education has been about the reproduction of privilege rather than the creation of opportunity. Most elite institutions are there for elites or to create a next generation of elites. But higher ed, I mean, the promise of the University of California is that higher ed could also be the greatest force for social progress and meaningful opportunity that has ever been imagined in the minds of humans. And so the work isn't worth doing unless you're bringing everyone with you. And uh, that means you have to focus systematically and, and relentlessly on all of the various barriers to full inclusion that all too often prevent people from taking advantage of the opportunities that otherwise would be afforded to them. And that means you have to systematically commit yourself to the eradication of all of those barriers so that every person of goodwill, regardless of their background, who wants to commit to this world of inquiry and discovery will have an opportunity to do it. I don't think it's actually worth doing otherwise. And uh, so it has to be central to our mission because uh, we're the University of California and that's what the people expect when they created us. Fantastic. Uh, Chancellor, any idea how long you'll be, you know, in this position? That you, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's the sort of job where, you know, at a moment's notice, you can end up not being in the position. I hope that's <laughs> not true. I'm having a great time. There's a number of very important things that we want to see to completion. At some point, it's going to be important for uh, fresh eyes to come onto the campus. But, you know, at least for the next few years, we have medical centers we're developing. We have museums we're trying to create. And I, I would love if I had a chance to see some of the work that we set in motion, some more of the work that we set in motion come to fruition. So I'm, I'm keeping my fingers crossed that we can keep things going for at least a little while longer. Fantastic. Chancellor, thank you so much for the time. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Kevin, for the conversation and best wishes, everyone. Take good care. Thank you again to UCI Chancellor Howard Gilman for sharing his road to UCI. It was fresh, spontaneous, and downright fun to hear all about his start as a line drummer and then magician at the famous Magic Castle, and then continued with major stops at UCLA and USC. Both these institutions proved to be an excellent training ground for his arrival at UCI in 2013. We wish him continued success as he leads this great academic institution called UCI. And now just a couple closing notes. You've been listening to UCI Conversations, where every week we explore another corner of the land of blue and gold with interviews of UCI leaders, innovators, and zot, 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 everyday anteaters every Wednesday at 4 p.m. This show and all my previous shows can be accessed 24-7 on my podcast website at www.bostonmeyer.com. Check it out. 
I'm your host, Kevin Bossenmeyer, wishing you a pleasant good evening and happy trails. You are listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. So long, everybody. We'll see you next week. Take it away, piano man Fred Kaplan with Signifying.